A scripture reading from Psalms 32, verse 1 through 5. Happy are those whose transgressions is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Happy are those to whom the Lord imputes no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. While I kept silent, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not hide my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. And a reading from 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him while we are walking in darkness, we lie and do not do what he what is true. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We're reminded this morning in this psalm of the story of David. Now many of you have heard the story of David for your entire lives. You have been able to kind of assimilate it and make it something that's just known to you, that you're just used to, that you you kind of could probably pull out of your head anytime you want. And yet we oftentimes gloss over a very dark time in David's life. And even the scriptures kind of gloss over this dark time for a bit. And it condenses it down and gives us this short story. And the story is a time when David, as a leader, completely failed his people because of his own lusts in his own heart and because of things that he was doing that was not appropriate uh, as the king of all of Israel. And so you guys know this story. David one day is sitting up in his palace and he looks down and he sees on one of the nearby rooftops uh, a woman who is not his wife bathing. And he decides that he is going to make her his own. And so he calls her to himself and he, he does exactly what his heart desires. Being a man in power, it's little, there's little that David could get um, if he desired it. And so he desired Bathsheba and he took it. But it became quickly known to him that his mistake went bigger when she was pregnant. She was found to be pregnant. And so he went to cover over his sin. He went to cover over his, his mistake. He, he went to try and make it so that it never happened by calling her actual husband, who happened to be one of his soldiers fighting a war for him off in another land, and bring him back so that somehow there could have some arrangement where, where it could make it seem like it was actually Uriah's kid and not his. And so Uriah comes home, but Uriah is such a faithful servant of David's that he refuses. He refuses to even go to his home and to be with his wife. And instead he says, no, I will stay with my king because my king needs me. And so I'm going to be here with you. And so David realizes that he's not going to be able to cover over what he did wrong. And so he decides to go further, to cover it more. 
to become even more guilty with more sin as he seeks to cover over his own failures, his own mistakes. And he sends Uriah to the very most dangerous place of the war, knowing that in sending him there, that he will be killed, that he'll probably lose his life in the battle. And so he does. He sends him off and he indeed dies in the war. And then David is able to almost look a little bit like uh, like a really good and righteous man by taking Bathsheba into his household and marrying her. And it looks like he's trying to take care of this poor widow whose husband died in his service. But all of it, all of it is so that he could cover up his own sin, so that he could cover up his own weaknesses and his own failure. So when David does this, what we don't get in the story of the narrative, we get here in Psalm 32. And that is that as David sat in the darkness of his sin, wishing to have it covered over and wishing to have it just go away and pretending like it didn't happen, that David himself began to feel the effects of that sin in his life. And so he writes this psalm, Psalm 32, after he comes to a reconciliation with God, after he confesses his sin, after he recognizes what he had done wrong and he repents. He remembers back to the time when he was not confessing. And he remembers that his life felt like it was crushed, that his life felt like it was being removed from him, that his energy, his power was being sapped from him, and that he was just depressed and sad, and he was feeling as though he was losing the very thing that God had given to him and blessing him as the king. And then he acknowledges his sin. Now we know, we know that he didn't come to his acknowledgement of his sin on his own. How many of you remember, give me a hand out your window, how he came to confess his sin? A few of you. For those of you who don't remember the story, what happened was a prophet named Nathan that we don't really know anything else about. Really, he only shows up here. Nathan shows up to the palace one day, and Nathan confronts David on the word of God that God calls him to confront David and he comes and he tells David this story and he tells David a story about a a man who steals the sheep of another man who has less than him and then slaughters the man in order to keep the sheep and David becomes incensed incensed about this this injustice that has happened in this story that Nathan tells him and he demands that Nathan tell him who this man is so that he can go and get justice for the smaller man, the man of less wealth, who was robbed of his sheep. And then Nathan tells him, you're this man. And David recognizes that this was a parable about his own sinfulness, about his own lusts, about his own failures and weaknesses that he had done with Uriah and with Bathsheba. And he immediately is broken and recognizes that he must confess his sins to the Lord and so he does and then David feels the forgiveness of God for all that he done now that doesn't mean there isn't consequences because there are consequences to David's sin in fact David's son who was born of Bathsheba dies and it is a direct consequence of David's sin the Lord tells him and so David mourns and repents and comes to the Lord open and vulnerable and broken knowing that he had done wrong 
and he feels the forgiveness and the mercy and the grace of God come into his life, and it's like that entire burden is lifted. So why? Why did David have this experience? What was going on in his life? Now, confession is something that's interesting to us Protestants because we don't do the old practice of the church that we came from, the Roman Catholic Church, where I am a priest and I stand before you, between you and God, and you come to me and confess your sins to me, and then I bring them to the Lord, and I tell you what to do in penance, and then you receive forgiveness. We don't do that. Thank God. I don't want to know your sins. I don't want to know anything that you've done wrong. I mean, if you have to come and confess to me, that's fine. I'll listen. But you guys, we don't do this because we recognize as Protestants that we have a direct line to God, that we don't need a priest, but we have a high priest who is more perfect, as Jane said in the introduction to the confession, a high priest who is perfect and yet knows exactly what it's like to be human because he became human. And he lived a life in perfect obedience to God, not doing as David does, not doing as we do, disobeying God, but instead perfectly obeying God with everything he did. And then instead, he still felt the sting and the pain and the consequences of sin as we, in our sin, put him on the cross and crucified him. And yet Jesus stayed perfectly blameless in that, obeying the Father, as Paul says in Philippians, even to the point of death on a cross. And so Jesus becomes for us a perfect mediator. And so we have direct access to God. And we know because of God's love for us in Jesus that we already are forgiven. And so we don't have to have pretenses. We don't have to pretend like we're not sinners. We don't have to pretend like we don't need confession. We can come and confess and bear everything because we know, we know that God loves us, and while we were still in our sin, he died for us. So even more than David, we should be aware of our need for confession and the blessing that confession is. You know, there's something to the way the Catholic Church does confession. And my wife and I were actually musing on this uh, this last year, and we were both read some things and we kind of had this sparked in our mind and we had a conversation about it, that kind of our modern day form of confession, because we've kind of lost this as a practice, is therapy, right? We go to counselors and we kind of tell them everything going on in our life and we have them reflect back to us what they're hearing, everything, just in pure vulnerability before another human being who we know legally has to keep our confidence. And so we're able to say anything we want to them, and we're able to share our burdens of our heart. We're able to share our weaknesses and the things we're guilty and shameful about. And we, we know that they are not going to judge us, and they're going to guide us and help us. And this is kind of, I think, the same practice that we see in the Catholic Church and why it was so popular for so long and still is to this day. And why us Protestants, I think, sometimes are missing an element of a discipline of confession. Now, we see in our other passage, in, in a letter written by the Apostle John, that he says that if anybody walks in darkness, they can have no part in God, because God is light. God is not darkness. There is no, no hidden thing, no darkness in him. Instead, it's all light. And so if we want to be a part of God, we too must walk in the light. But notice, notice that it's not a part of walking in the light to never sin. 
That's not what John's talking about here because John immediately addresses what happens when we fall short, when we make mistakes, when we rebel against God's will in our lives and do whatever we desire at usually the cost of other people. And John says that when this happens, in order for us to be children of the light, that we must confess our sins. That we must come before the Lord and acknowledge and recognize what we have done wrong. And that in this, as we acknowledge and walk in a pattern of revealing to even to ourselves and to God who we genuinely truly are, even in all of our imperfections, then we are no longer hiding, we're no longer in darkness, and we are in light. So John encourages us to confess our sins. This is why in worship every single week we have a prayer of confession and then we have a time of silent confession. Now I've had remarks from some of you for the amount of time that we allow for the silent period of confession. And a few people have said, man, some of those liturgists that we have, they must not sin a lot because they don't give me enough time to confess all of my sins. And that's why usually when I'm leading that time of silence, it goes way too long because I'm still confessing all of my sins for that long period of time. And so this is why in our worship we practice this discipline of confession, is we recognize that it, in order for us to be united with God, that even when we sin, we must walk in the light. We must acknowledge it. We must air it out and recognize that we have failed and that we have rebelled against God, and we must choose to repent, to turn opposite of the direction we were going in our sin and choose a new direction, the direction that God desires for us. So I want to talk a little bit about why this discipline I think is important and, and give us the story of scripture behind it to why I think it's, it's necessary for us in order for us to be able to walk with God. Now notice, all the way back in Genesis chapter 2, God creates humanity. And when he creates humanity, what's the state that they are in? Somebody shout it out from their car. They are, it starts with an N, naked and unashamed. They are naked and unashamed. Now, I don't think this means that, the, that we should all just run around naked. That'd be disgusting. I don't want to see, I don't want to be naked in front of you. I don't want anybody else to be naked. That's not the idea. I think that there is a metaphor here. There is an analogy here for us. And it's about a barrier between us and other people. And it's represented here in the act of being naked. But what is really happening here is it's about vulnerability. And what clothes really does is it protects us. It protects us against the elements. It protects us against, you know, uh, all kinds of stuff. And so this idea of them not having clothes on, in, and that's their natural state, is really a metaphor for being before the God who created us and bearing everything before him and being completely unashamed. And why? Why were they unashamed before the Lord in their natural state? Because they were good. God created them and said, it is good. And then we see that they are given one command, one command, that's it. Have you ever thought about why God gave one silly command? God didn't need to give any commands. God didn't need to create a tree in this story for them to not eat from. 
But he does. He creates a tree and he tells them, don't eat from this tree. Again, this is an analogy. It's a metaphor. It's a metaphor for the kind of relationship we are designed to have before this God. And it's a relationship of absolute trust, right? Because Adam and Eve had no evidence, no knowledge of their own that led them to believe that they shouldn't eat from this tree. In fact, as we're told in the story later, all the physical evidence before them points to the fact that they should eat from this tree, right? The fruit looked good. It was, it was pleasant to the taste, and it would give them knowledge of good and evil. And so in every empirical way, as they looked at it, then they should eat from this tree. And yet, God gave them this command to not eat from this tree. And so their only way they would obey that command is to fully and 100% trust the God who gave them that command. And yet they didn't. They didn't. And we've looked at this story before in many other sermons, and we've seen that there was something already going on in the hearts of Adam and Eve prior to this, that they added to God's rule. You know, and thou shalt not touch it. God didn't say anything about not touching the tree. So they were already tempted. They were already looking at the tree and lusting after it and adding extra rules so that they wouldn't be so tempted to actually break the commandment of God. So there was something already going on in their heart where they were mistrusting the one who gave them the command and wondering if the command he gave them was good. And so they eventually let that consume them and just a little prompt from a snake, they all of a sudden decide we're going to eat from this tree. And they eat from the tree. And then what is the first thing that they realize when they eat from the tree? That they're naked, right? And they immediately want to cover themselves up. They immediately want to protect themselves. They immediately want to get rid of their vulnerability before others. And they wanted to put a barrier between them and the created world, the barrier between them and God. They were all of a sudden self interested when before this they were only interested in God and serving each other and serving the world that God had given them to be stewards over. And so in this moment they turn inward and they become selfish. And then what we see after this is I think one of the most amazing things in scripture. And if you, you've ever heard me talk at any other point, you probably know that I love this part of the scriptures more than probably anything else. And it's because in this moment when we see God return to the garden to walk with Adam and Eve, something that apparently was his practice and that he would do all the time, he still shows up. If we believe anything about the rest of the scriptures and what it tells us about God, God knew Adam and Eve sinned. God knew Adam and Eve turned against his command and that they had chosen to eat from this tree. And yet he still shows up. Bearing himself before his creation. And when he doesn't find Adam and Eve... What does he do? He calls out. He calls out to his creatures, beckoning to come into his presence, knowing their shame, their guilt, their fear that have led them to fall away from him. He knows this, and yet he calls out their name. Friends, 
Friends, this is so important because this is an analogy of you. This is your story. This is your life. And so when God shows up in the Garden of Eden, it is saying that God shows up in your life. That God beckons you by your name. I wish I knew who was on the cards. There's glare. I would say each of your names as if I was God calling you in the garden. God beckons you by your name. And yet I recognize that so often in my life, when God beckons me and calls me by his, my name and tells me that he loves me, where can I find myself? Where was Adam and Eve? Hiding behind a bush. Too afraid. Too self-concerned. Too vulnerable. To be exposed. This is why the discipline of confession is a part of every Christian faith, even the Protestant faith, and why we make it a part of our worship every week, because it's an act of coming out from behind whatever bush we're using to hide ourselves from God and recognizing that God has beckoned us and called us into his presence despite our sin, despite our failures, despite Despite whatever we've done to turn against and rebel against God's commands for us. God beckons you out of your place of hiding from him and calls you into his glorious light. And he does it in a way that is not threatening because he even showed us how much he loves us by being willing to become a human being and die on the cross for you. And so confession is returning to our natural state before God, one in which we already exist. You think Adam and Eve were really genuinely hiding from the creator of all the cosmos behind their little bush? No, and neither are you. So come out into the open. Come before the Lord. Tell him all you've done wrong. And like David, let his mercies shine down on you and fill you with new life as you regain your connection with your creator. In transparency, in honesty, in vulnerability. Make confession not just a part of your Sunday morning worship discipline, but a part of your daily discipline. Don't let yourself get into the patterns of, that we usually do of continually hiding behind our little bush, pretending like we can somehow escape the God who created us. Let us recognize his love, his mercy, his grace, and his gentleness towards us even in our sin and trust in him as we come in vulnerability before him and bear it all in Jesus' name. This is probably dangerous to do, so I'm asking you to be gentle about this. 
but um, we have a group of people who have been helping to make these services possible as we've been doing online services and then as we've been doing drive-in that's never get acknowledged and they're behind the camera. Um, and so I just wanted to see if we could just give like little tap, little love taps on our horn as a thank you to our tech team uh, for all the work they put in. All right, all right, that's probably enough. That's probably enough. <laughs> we don't want to drive our neighbors crazy. But thank you guys for your tireless efforts, not just the guys who are here, but we've had other uh, people helping with tech and always every week when we, even our normal services, just they do such a great job. And uh, honestly, we're such a, we're so much more ahead of the game because of them um, for COVID and all the stuff we've been going through than a lot of other churches. And so just thank you so much for, for their work. So let us come before the Lord and end our worship recognizing that if we are this morning hiding from God, that we don't need to. We don't need to hide from God anymore. You don't need to be behind your bush and, and cowering in fear and cowering in shame and guilt from the Lord. Come out and be before the Lord and be vulnerable before him. Acknowledge your weaknesses. Acknowledge your sins and allow God to give you his grace and mercy so that you might find new life in him. And may the God of grace and mercy make himself known to you in a new way this week so that you might be lifted up into his glory and encouraged to serve him this week. In Jesus' name, amen.